We are approaching Easter and we will commemorate this coming Friday and Sunday, the death and resurrection of our dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in preparation for that, we'll read this morning from the Gospel of John. We'll read a passage, first of all, as sort of background. We'll read John 11, 45 through 57. And then our text for this morning will be the very following verses, John 8, uh, or John 12, 1 through 8, where we'll read about Jesus being anointed by Mary. So we'll turn now to John 11, the Gospel of John. We'll begin reading at verse 45. This is the word of the living and the almighty God. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And what Jesus had done in the preceding verses was to raise Lazarus from the dead. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And then here follows our text for this morning. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, and not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may not keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor... You always have with you, but you do not always have me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands firm and sure forevermore.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ is the great dividing point in the history of the world. And that's uh, true, not just in the sense that the cross stands at the, the very center of history. If you think about it, everything that happened before Jesus' crucifixion, it funneled down towards, it led towards that, that day when he was hung there on Calvary's hill. And since the moment of his crucifixion, everything has flowed outwards from that most momentous of events. But it's not just true that the cross stands at the very center of history. It's also true that how an individual responds to the cross and how a person responds to the one who hung on it, that is ultimately what divides one person from another. And that's something that Jesus was very clear about throughout the entire course of his ministry. Jesus, for instance, at one point says that you are either with him or you are against him. On another occasion, Jesus speaking about the last days says that when he comes and as he acts as a judge in that last day, that he will separate people, that he'll separate them into two camps. He says that he will take the sheep and place them on his right hand and the goats will be set on the left. There were, he said, at the end of the day, two groups of people. There were those whom he would declare that he knew and whom he would welcome into his kingdom and those whom he would say, I do not know who you are, be gone into outer darkness. And the point here is to say that that ultimately there is only one thing that truly divides every man, woman, and child who lives on the face of this earth. And what divides us is not wealth. What divides us is not race or gender or politics. No, what ultimately divides us is how we respond to the cross. It is how we respond to the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Lord of life. And we see the reality of this division. We see the reality of that division being played out for us here in the words of our text this morning. Mary's anointing of Christ, as well as the, the two vignettes that follow. If you look at this whole chapter, John chapter 12, you'll see that, that John tells us three very particular, very specific stories. First, he tells us that Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. Then he tells us about Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And finally, he tells us about an occasion where a number of Gentiles, a number of Greek speakers come seeking Jesus out. These three stories, these three vignettes that are set out for us in chapter 12, these three vignettes mark the final glimpses of Jesus' public ministry. After these things, John tells us that Jesus hid himself, that he hid himself from the people, that he withdrew from the sight of the crowds, that he pulls back into private, and there in private, Jesus devoted himself to two things. He devoted himself to the the final instruction of the disciples. We see that in Jesus' farewell discourse that will follow, and he devoted himself to preparing for the cross. He devoted himself to to preparing for those those final steps of his earthly ministry. Now, these three events, 
these three vignettes, if you will, these are the final glimpses then of Jesus' public ministry. And it's very important as we, as we consider these three events that, that we don't divorce them from what has, what has happened at the end of chapter 11. And that's something that John makes very clear to us in the, in the first verse of our text. In, in chapter 12, verse one, John is very careful to point out that these events, this anointing of Jesus, that this is something that occurs in Bethany. Now, what had happened in Bethany just a very short time ago? Well, what had happened in Bethany was that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And the performance of that mighty miracle, that bringing of Lazarus out of the grave where he stands in front of that grave where Lazarus has been for four days and he calls into the darkness and he says, come out of there. Lazarus come out of the grave, the performance of that mighty miracle, it had proved to be an absolutely watershed moment in Jesus' ministry. And it was a watershed moment in terms of the way that people responded to that miraculous event. At the end of chapter 11, John tells us that many of the people who had witnessed Lazarus' resurrection, many of the people who had heard about that mighty deed, that they were moved, that they were moved in their hearts to, to put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they were moved in their hearts to give their lives to him. But that wasn't the only response to Lazarus' resurrection. No, John tells us that in addition to those who were moved to give their lives to him, there were those who were moved to scorn him. There were those who were moved to mock him and to set themselves in opposition to him. There were some who were enraged by Lazarus' resurrection and they came to the conclusion that Jesus not only needed to be rejected, and that his claims of being the Messiah needed to be rejected, but that Jesus' ministry needed to be brought to an end, and it needed to be brought to an end, preferably by putting him to death. What we're seeing at the end of chapter 11 then, is that people had profoundly different reactions to the revelation that Jesus of Nazareth was most certainly the Lord of life. There were some who were moved to give their lives to him, while others were far more concerned with their place and with their station and in this life, and they were utterly loath to give over control of their lives to Christ. Now, it's very important for us to be aware of these developments because what we find here in our text this morning in chapter 12, what we discover is what we could call a narrowing of focus, so to speak. And I mean that in the sense that that what is happening here in the passage that's before us this morning is that the events that are occurring out there in the wider world, those events are being mirrored in what's happening in the context of Jesus' inner circle. And if you think about the the sort of flow or the, the trajectory, the movement from chapter 11 to chapter 12, what we see in chapter 11 is the response of the crowds. We see the response of the world, as it were, and those broad categories of people respond either by giving their lives to him or rejecting him. But what we see happening here at the beginning of chapter 12 is that the very same thing is occurring inside the ranks of Jesus' closest associates. 
And so there's a narrowing of focus as we move at the end of chapter 11 from the world into Jesus' inner circle. And it's so important for us to realize that that as this process plays out, it isn't just, it isn't just about the revelation of the hearts of men. As this process develops, it isn't just about showing who it is that loves Jesus and, and who it is that hates him. No, as this process plays out, what we need to realize is that it occurs as Jesus is moving step by step closer to the cross. And as he moves step by step closer to the cross, the weight of his suffering is intensifying. With every single step that Jesus takes during this final Passion Week, the cross looms ever more before him and the weight of his suffering presses down ever more intensely upon him. And we see that in the fact that Jesus can't escape, can he? He can't escape what's happening in the world even when he retreats into the ranks of his inner circle. Because that polarization of the hearts of men is happening there as well. And so what we're seeing here in this narrative is is how Jesus is, is suffering. Suffering as he moves towards the cross. All right then, well how do the events of this passage play out? And how do the events of this passage that's before us this morning, how do they illustrate two different responses to the revelation that Jesus is the Lord of life? Well, to appreciate that, we've got to come to grips with two things this morning. First of all, we need to consider Mary's anointing of the Lord Jesus. We need to see what it is that Mary did and we need to give some thought to why it is that Mary does these things. But in addition to coming to grips with Mary's anointing of the Lord Jesus, what we also need to understand is how Judas Iscariot, how he responds to that very same act of devotion. So we need to see Mary's heart, we need to see Judas's heart, and we need to see how those hearts stand in relationship to the heart of Jesus Christ. So we start then with Mary. And as we consider Mary's actions this morning, I'd like to suggest to you that there are four things. There are four things we need to take note of in terms of what Mary does. Well, the first thing is this. Mary's anointing of Jesus was a deliberate act of devotion. Mary's anointing of Jesus was a deliberate act of devotion. And the deliberateness of her behavior is something that's made clear for us. It's something that's underscored for us by the value of the perfume that Mary uses to anoint Jesus. We're told here by John that Mary pours out an ointment on Jesus and John says that this ointment was made of nard. In fact, he's even a little more specific. He says that the ointment was made of pure nard. Now, what do we know about nard? Well, nard is an oil. It's an oil that is extracted from the root of and from the spike of a nard plant. And nard plants grow in India. Now, I don't know anything about how one goes about getting nard out of a nard plant. I don't know how you extract oils from the root of a plant. But what I can imagine is two things. One, it must have been a very difficult process. And two, it must have been a very labor-intensive process. 
To extract oil from the the parts of the nard plant in sufficient quantity must have taken a a huge amount of time and it must have taken a, a huge amount of effort. And when you take the time and the effort that it must have taken to get that nard and you combine it with the distance that this perfume had to travel, Think about this, Mary is in Bethany, she's in Palestine. This oil originates in India, and that's a very long way for this oil to come. And so when you think about that, the the time and the effort and the difficulty and the distance that this oil had to travel in order to be in Mary's possession, it's no surprise that this oil was tremendously valuable. John tells us that it was very expensive. Now to say that this oil is expensive is in some ways a bit of an understatement. It was incredibly expensive. John says of this oil, or that, sorry, Judas says of this oil, that it could have been sold, he says, for 300 denarii. Now that's not a number that might mean very much to us until we realize that a denarii was roughly one day's wages for an average worker, which means that 300 denarii was essentially equivalent to one year's wages. It was equivalent to the entire year's wages for an average working family at that time. And so the reality is that this was tremendously expensive. It was a tremendously valuable ointment that Mary uses. And that tells us something. It tells us that this ointment that Mary poured out on Jesus, that it was either very likely a family heirloom or it might actually have been Mary's inheritance. This is an item that is deeply precious to the family. It's an item that could have been Mary's future financial security. And the fact that Mary takes this oil and that she pours it out on Jesus, it tells us that this was something she did very deliberately. This wasn't a spur of the moment decision for Mary. It's not as if Jesus walked into the house and Mary saw a bottle of Chanel number five on the, on the, on the bathroom sink and thought, well, let's spritz a little of this on the Lord, right? No, this, this isn't a little Coco Chanel that's being thrown around. This is valuable ointment, precious ointment, which means Mary must have thought about this. She must have intended to do this. This was a very deliberate, intentional, thought out act of devotion on Mary's part. Second thing we want to note about what Mary does, anointing Jesus was an act of humility. Anointing Jesus was an act of humility. That's clear from two details of this text. First of all, Mary anoints Jesus' feet. Now, just a a comment by way of aside here. If later on today you wanted to go and you wanted to read the parallel accounts that are, are given in Matthew and in Mark, you will find that there's a difference between what Matthew and Mark tell us and what John tells us. Matthew and Mark tell us that the oil was poured out on Jesus' head, and John tells us that the oil was poured out on Jesus' feet. Now here's the thing, we're told that that Mary used about a pound of oil, so we're talking about roughly half a liter here. 
You think about it, that's one of those 500 milliliter chocolate milks, right? That's essentially what she's got. She takes that and she pours that out on Jesus. It would have been a sufficient quantity. It would have been a sufficient quantity of ointment for her to have anointed both Jesus' head and his feet. And so we can be confident that she has done this. And I think we can be particularly confident because of the way that, the way that Jesus describes what happens later on. He says of Mary's actions that her anointing of him prepared him for his burial. And if you prepared someone for burial, you wouldn't put spices just on their head and just on their feet. You would have put spices and ointments over the whole of their body. And so we can be confident here that Jesus says, she's anointed me for my burial. She's got about a half a liter of liquid. She could easily have anointed both his head and his feet. And this, this anointing has, has two different meanings, if you will. Anointing Jesus' head was a royal anointing. It was the anointing that one would give to a king. But anointing Jesus' feet Anointing Jesus' feet was an act of humility because it showed a heart that is given to a king. And that's what we we find Mary doing here. In anointing Jesus' feet, Mary is humbling herself before Jesus. And Mary Mary doesn't just show her humility in the fact that she anoints Jesus' feet, she also shows her humility in the way that she uses her hair. Now we're told by John that that Mary undoes the tresses of her hair and that she lets her hair down and that she uses her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. Now here's the thing. For a woman at that time to have let down her hair would have been a borderline scandalous thing for a respectable woman to have done in public. The reality is no Jewish woman at that time would have ever undone her hair before anyone who wasn't her husband. And that is because at that time, there's really only one kind of woman who would have let down her hair in public, and that was a woman of ill repute. And so the reality is letting down her hair in public, it was an extraordinary sign of vulnerability. It was an extraordinary sign of humility. Mary was saying that she didn't care what anyone in that room thought except what Jesus thought. She only cares. She only cares about about him. You know, scripture tells us that a woman's hair is her glory. And Mary takes her hair and she uses that hair to wipe the feet of her Lord. She only wanted him to know that as as she poured that oil out upon him, that her heart was empty of any other concern than what he would think of her as her Lord. So Mary's act was one of deliberation. Mary's act was one of humiliation. But Mary's act was also one of recognition. And it was an act of recognition of who Christ was. Mary's act was an act of recognition of the person of Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing about Mary. Mary may not have understood just exactly what it was that Jesus was going to do as the Messiah. 
There's no evidence in our text that Mary understood that that Jesus was going to die and that not only was he going to die but that he had to die and that he had to die in order to redeem her from her sins. We're not told anywhere in the text that, that Mary understood that Jesus was going to sacrifice himself on the cross as an atonement for her sins. We don't know that. But nevertheless, there are things about Jesus that Mary was absolutely certain about. There were things that she knew about him that were beyond a shadow of a doubt. And what Mary knew about Jesus is that he had given her Lazarus back. What Mary knew about Jesus is that he had raised Lazarus from the dead, that he had given her brother his life back. And so what Mary knows beyond a shadow of a doubt is that the the rabbi, the man who is before her, that he is the Lord of life. And more than that, she knows that he is the way of life. And because she knows that he is the Lord of life and the way of life, Mary knew that she could safely give her life to him. She knew that she had to do that. She knew that she had to give over her life, that she had to entrust her life into the care of Jesus. And her willingness to give her life into the service and into the care of her Lord, this is something that that becomes evident from from what Matthew and what Mark tell us about how, how Mary anointed Jesus. There's a wonderful, a really beautiful and incredible little detail that's given in the account of Matthew and Mark. And this wonderful little detail relates to the way in which, the way in which Mary anoints Jesus. And what Matthew and Mark tell us is that when, when Mary came up to Jesus, she has this jar that contains this pure nard. And when she comes before him, she breaks off the neck of that jar. She, she snaps off the top of it. And now why is that such an important detail? Because think about the alternative. What might Mary have done with that ointment? She might have come up to him and presumably, you know, she had her little alabaster flask and presumably it had some sort of stopper in it. She could have come up to Jesus and pulled out the stopper and poured a little dollop on his head, maybe sprinkled a little on his robes, poured some on his feet. She could have poured out some of the oil And having poured out some of it, she could have put the stopper back in and and set aside what was left. But that's not what Mary does. When Mary comes before Jesus, she takes that flask and she she breaks the neck off of it. And what what does that tell us about her actions? Well, it tells us that there was no going back. Once she'd broken the neck off of that jar, she couldn't just pour out some of it. There was no going back once she had given her life to Jesus. But it doesn't just tell us that there was no going back. It also tells us that she was prepared to hold nothing back. Because once she'd broken the the neck off that jar, why did she do that? So she could ensure that she poured out every last drop. That every single drop of that oil would be poured out on Christ. When she snaps the neck off that jar, she is saying, 
Jesus is the Lord of life. He is the Lord of my life. And I have given my life to him and there is no turning back and there is no holding back in that process. And it's extraordinary, Jesus detects in her tears the heart of someone who knows, who knows that she has been forgiven much. He detects in her tears and in her actions, he detects the heart of someone who has acknowledged him to be the Lord of life. So Mary's act was an act of deliberation, it was an act of humiliation, it was an act of recognition, but it was also ultimately an act of faith. Mary pours out this oil of anointing as an act of faith, and we know that to be true for two reasons. We know it to be true, first of all, because of the whole context in which which Mary's actions are set. The entire flow of thought through the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, as Jesus enters the city, as the Greeks come, as Jesus ends his public ministry, the entire flow of thought here is one of responding to Jesus in faith or rejecting him in unbelief. Everything about this entire final narrative of Jesus' public ministry is about whether or not people respond to him as the Lord of life or whether they reject him as the Lord of life. And Mary's anointing of Jesus is set right in the middle of this flow of thought and so she is presented as one who has responded to Christ in faith but in addition to the context in which these things occur, we also know that this was an act of faith because of the way that our Lord Jesus responds to what she has done. You'll notice here that Jesus doesn't just protect her. He doesn't just rise to her defense. Matthew and Mark tell us that as she poured out this oil upon him, there were many who scoffed at her and who scorned her. And Matthew says that there were those who scolded her. Well, Jesus doesn't just rise to her defense. He doesn't just protect her. What he does is he takes her action and he contextualizes what she has done within the wider framework of redemptive history. He says that Mary has anointed him in preparation for his burial. That what she has done is playing a crucial role in preparing him to go to the cross. And so here's the reality. Mary may not have known. Mary might not have recognized the full significance of what she's done, but Jesus does, and he makes that clear. And why does Jesus respond the way that he does? Because as I said, he detects in her tears the heart of someone who is aware that she has been forgiven much. He recognizes her behavior to be an act of faith. Now, that's four things about Mary's act of devotion that we've learned. And it's important for us to have an appreciation for what Mary has done Because here in this passage, John takes Mary's behavior and he sets her behavior in stark contrast to Judas's reaction. Now John specifically identifies Judas as the one who objects to what Mary has done. But the accounts of Matthew and Mark make it clear that there were others. 
There were others amongst this circle of disciples. There were others even in the ranks of Jesus' closest associates who are similarly scandalized by her behavior. But here in John's gospel, it's Judas. Judas who becomes the spokesperson for the outrage of of those who've had a similar reaction to Jesus' anointing. And what is it that has sparked this outrage? What is it that causes Judas to respond to Mary's act of devotion the way that he does? Well, it's the greedy desires of his heart. It's his love for money. It's his love for money and for his own comfort and for his own pleasure and for his own welfare. That is what motivates Judas to respond the way that he does. Now, to be fair, to be fair, it wouldn't have been immediately clear to those standing there at the time that this is what was happening. It's only clear because the Holy Spirit subsequently revealed to John the motives of Judas's heart. But let's be, let's be understanding of the circumstances in a certain sense because at first glance, Judas's concern doesn't seem entirely unreasonable. This has, after all, been a lavish act of devotion on Mary's part. You know, I don't know, I didn't, I should maybe have looked at this beforehand, but I don't know what the average salary of a a person here in Canada would be for a year. Would the average salary be $65,000, $70,000 a year? Can you imagine taking $70,000, an entire year's labor, and buying essentially 500 milliliters of perfume with it? and then taking that perfume and simply pouring it out all at once on top of someone else. It's it's astounding, isn't it? I mean, it's a mind-boggling action. And you can understand how someone, in a certain sense, might look at that and say, hey, yeah, yeah, what have you done, right? You've taken $70,000 worth of perfume and just poured it out. We could have taken, think what we could have done. Right? We could have helped the poor. We could have started a pregnancy center. We could have renovated the church. We could have, you know, think of, we could have paid a missionary for a year with that. You can imagine somebody responding in that sort of way. And there's a certain, at the outset, at first glance, there's a certain logic to it. But John tells us differently. He tells us that no matter how noble Judas's intentions might have appeared, that Judas was being profoundly hypocritical here. And that he's being profoundly hypocritical because Judas was the one who was in charge of the disciples' money bag. And it turns out that in addition to being a betrayer, Judas was also a thief. And that along the way as he had had access to that money bag that Judas had been dipping his hand into it and that he'd been pulling money out and that he'd been using it to his own ends and purposes. Now, brothers and sisters, it's worth noting the remarkable irony of this situation. That money bag would have actually have served two purposes. The money bag that Judas had care over, it would have provided for the financial needs of Jesus and his disciples. They needed food, they needed clothing, they would have needed lodging, and those things would have been paid for out of the proceeds of that money bag. But that money bag would also have been used by Jesus and the disciples to provide charity. It's out of that money bag that Jesus and the disciples would have cared for the poor. 
And so when Judas says, well, we could have sold that money and given it to the poor, that is profoundly hypocritical because he was stealing from the money that was supposed to have been used for the poor. He just wanted that pot to be a little fuller when he had an opportunity to dip his hand into it. And so the real issue here is that Judas responds to Christ's anointing by scolding Mary, and he does so because his heart hasn't been touched by the gospel. His heart hasn't been transformed by proximity to Christ. And the reason that his heart hadn't been transformed is because there wasn't any room for Christ. There wasn't any room for Christ in Judas's heart, and there wasn't any room for Christ in Judas's heart because Judas's heart was actually already filled. His heart was filled with love, but it wasn't for Christ. His heart was filled with love for money. His heart was filled with love for the pleasures of this life. And in this, you can see the parallel between what's happening in the wider text. Think of what we read from the end of John 11. What is it that has so enraged the Pharisees when they hear that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead? What enrages them is the fear that the people will recognize Jesus as the king of the Jews. And if they recognize Jesus as the king, that the Romans will come. And that if the Romans march their legions in to put down this king of the Jews, that the Pharisees are going to lose their place in the world, that they're gonna lose their station, that they're gonna lose their nation and their place within it. The heart of the Pharisees and the heart of Judas Iscariot is the same in the way that it responds to Jesus. There's no room to love him because they love the things of this world. Now, loved ones, the point of setting these things before our hearts is not, and let me say that again, is not that we would read these words and that we would leave here this morning thinking to ourselves, well, I need to be like Mary or I need to be or not be like Judas. That isn't the point of what we've read here in this passage. No, the point. The point is to confront us with the gospel truth that it is how we respond to Christ and that it's how we respond to his acts of devotion that really matters. And that's something that's again driven home by, by something that Matthew and Mark record in their, in their revelation of these events. Matthew and Mark note that after Jesus rises to Mary's defense, after he says to Judas and to the others, leave her alone, after he contextualizes her, her act in the broader strokes of redemptive history, that he says something remarkable. He says, know this, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what Mary has done will be told. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, Mary's act of devotion will be recounted and the story of her devotion to Christ will be said. Now why? Why would Jesus say that? Why is it so important that this will happen? Because what happens, brothers and sisters, when the gospel is proclaimed? Well, when the gospel is proclaimed, we are told about Christ's act of devotion. When the gospel is proclaimed, men hear about how Jesus was willing voluntarily 
to lay aside his glory and to take on our human flesh. Men hear about how Jesus was willing to come into this world and how he was willing to walk the road of suffering and obedience. And men hear about how that road led directly to him being hung on the cross and of how there on the cross he endured the outpouring of God's wrath against sin. Men hear about how Christ gave his life on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. But when the gospel is proclaimed, we don't just hear that Christ died, we also hear that Christ rose again. We hear that though he was laid in the grave, that he didn't remain there, but that he took up his life again when he rose from the dead three days later. And so hearing the gospel means learning about how Jesus how he came to save, and about how he did these things out of love, how this was his act of devotion. His act of devotion, first of all, to his father, whose will he loved, whose will he delighted in, but his act of devotion also for his people. His act of devotion, whereby he made it clear that he he loved sinners and that he desired to be reconciled with them and that he desired so much to be reconciled with sinners that he was willing to shed his precious blood to bring that about. And how a person responds, how an individual responds to his act of loving devotion, that is the great dividing point. That is the great dividing point between all men. And there are only two possible reactions to the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Lord of life. Either we're going to respond like Judas and we'll respond with with hearts that are too filled with a love of things for this world to see and to value the knowledge that the Lord is the giver of life. Or we'll respond like Mary. Mary who having recognized him as the Lord of life understood that the things of this life had no value at all unless the things of this life were used in devotion to him. Do you understand that about Mary? Mary pouring out that precious perfume. Mary was saying the things of this life, they have no value unless they are used in devotion to him. And those, those are the two possible reactions to Christ's act of devotion. So having heard these things, how are we to respond? What are we to do? What are we to do with what we have learned this morning? Well, what we ought not to do is to harden our hearts to the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Lord and giver of life. And certainly we ought not to harden our hearts without a sense of consequence. If you are here this morning and you do not know the love of Jesus, if you are here this morning and you have not recognized him to be the Lord and and giver of life, or if you are here this morning and the love of this life is keeping you from giving your life to Jesus, then know what the consequences of Judas's actions were. He betrayed the giver of life. He betrayed the Lord of life for 30 pieces of silver. And when he had that 30 pieces of silver in his hand, 
It gave him no joy. It gave him no pleasure. In the end, he took that money and he threw it back at the people who'd given him. And he went out into the darkness and he hanged himself. That is the end of those who refuse to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ as the giver of life. They end in despair and darkness and death. They end in the discovery that things of this life can give them no meaning and no happiness. And so we cannot, we ought not to respond to this knowledge with a heart of Judas. Instead, instead we ought to cry out. We ought to cry out for the living God. And we ought to cry out to him for mercy. We ought to cry out to him for his spirit. We need to cry out for him to send us his spirit so that we might come to know Jesus and that we might come to know him ever more deeply. We need to beg of him that he would give us the light of his spirit so that in his light we would see the light, that we would see the light of truth. And having known him, we ought not to turn back from him If you have laid hold of the Lord Jesus Christ, be like Mary, break the neck of the jar. Don't turn back from him and don't hold anything back from him. Like Mary, fall at his feet and cling to him and weep tears that give evidence of a heart that knows that it has been forgiven much. And loved ones, do so in great confidence. We read from Micah this morning as an assurance of pardon. What does Micah say? He says that God delights. The very heart of God delights to show mercy. He does not despise sinners who cast off the things of this life, who empty themselves of all else but Christ and seek him for mercy. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly God and Father, we come before you this morning and we cry out to you. We cry out to you as those who are in need of mercy. You have sent before us this morning your very own heart. You have done so in speaking to us about your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, you have revealed him to us this morning as the Lord and as the giver of life. Now, Lord, we ask. We ask in humility. We ask, Father, that you would give us the power of your Holy Spirit, that he would come upon us, that he would dwell in our hearts, that he would burn brightly within us, that, Father, he would drive away the shadows and the darkness of sin, that he would bring light to our hearts and our minds that we might see and that we might see the truth, the truth of the gospel message and that having seen that truth, Father, you would give us hearts, hearts that run to our Lord and cling to him and seek to live in devotion to him. Father, only you can give us this gift. Only you can pour out upon us your spirit Only you can give us the grace of your son. And so, Father, we we plead with you for these gifts, these gifts that are so far beyond the price of ointment, 
These gifts that are truly treasures, truly priceless treasures. But we plead with you, Father, as those who who do so in confidence. For you've spoken of your own heart, not just in your son, but in your delight. Your delight to save us. To see us reconciled with yourself. And so, Father, we pray. We pray that you would delight in us. And that you would give us hearts of, of praise and of service to you. Amen.